Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And according to the U.S. Census, D.C. is getting younger and younger, with people 29 and under making up more than 42 percent of the population. And if you live in certain neighborhoods like Capitol Hill or Logan Circle, that percentage can feel even higher. So with a nod to all those young folks out there, we're calling today's show Coming of Age. We'll hear about kids coming of age in the juvenile justice system. A lot of their youthful behavior has much more serious consequences once you're involved in the system. And we'll hear from an older woman who's defying her age and inspiring others. It seemed in the beginning that I was coming to animate Kathleen, and it was Kathleen who was animating me. Plus, a city in Maryland lowers the voting age to 16. Learning that the voting age was lower than 18 in other countries and other places was complete news to me. And so I was open to the idea that, well, how's it working? So if we're talking about coming of age, something that's definitely been coming of age these past few years is D.C.'s restaurant industry. Longtime Washingtonians may remember that once upon a time, you could find some French restaurants in the city, some Italian, maybe some Chinese. Then you had steakhouses like Blackie's and cafeterias like Shoals. But these days, well, according to the Restaurant Association Metropolitan Washington, or RAMW, in 2011, the district boasted more than 2,100 eateries of all culinary stripes. That was nearly a 5% increase from 2010. And if you look at this year, well, this spring alone, roughly 50 new restaurants opened their doors around town. There's been a huge influx of restaurants from established chefs in D.C., as well as an influx of chefs from other parts of the country and other parts of the world who are opening restaurants. But, says Omar Hishmi, general manager of Woodward Table, the 300-seat restaurant that opened near McPherson Square last fall. You know, if you have a finite amount of labor in in D.C., it makes it a little bit difficult to kind of spread it out thin as it is. See, D.C. restaurants employed nearly 50,000 people last year. This year, they'll employ nearly 53,000. That's like 7% of the district's workforce. But Hishmi and his colleagues in the biz are having a heck of a time filling those positions with experienced restaurant staff. Our sister restaurants are Bistro Beast and Vidalia, where I previously worked. And when I was at Bistro Beast, uh, you know, you'd put an ad in, in Craigslist for a waiter, and you know, within a few hours, you'd have 60, 70 responses. It's not the same now. Uh, trying to find one or two good waiters or good bartenders is very, very difficult. Woodward Table hit the scene last November, but it took three whole months before that to fill all 130 staff positions. Not only did Hishmi have to hold these all-day job fairs... Sun up to sundown, because some people already have a job and maybe they can't come in until 8 or 9 o'clock. But once he finally found people, they weren't necessarily as seasoned as candidates in years past. To bring somebody on and to teach someone to be a good waiter or a good bartender or a good host or a good busser or a good food runner... You know, it's really a hands-on process, and it really requires everyone from the management down to come together to really train somebody properly. To do that with somebody who has no experience is is pretty difficult, but it definitely can be done. So you guys look to the menu, see anything you'd like to order? Colin Snyder is a first-time server at the new 14th Street outpost of Ted's Bulletin. That's the retro-American eatery famous for its homemade Pop-Tarts. What what Pop-Tarts do you have today? So we have um, blueberry cheesecake, strawberry, uh, brown sugar cinnamon, toasted coconut, which is not on the menu. And we also have uh, peanut butter bacon and chocolate salted caramel. 
It's before noon, so I'd recommend strawberry or blueberry cheesecake. You don't want to go too heavy. Again, this is Snyder's very first job, waiting tables. I just graduated from the University of Delaware, and um, I walked up and down 14th Street with all the new restaurants here, seeing uh, who was hiring. Were a lot of restaurants looking for staff? Uh, They were. A lot of restaurants were looking for uh, experience, but Ted's Bulletin, uh, as owned by Matchbox Food Group, I think they have a pretty solid um, training program in place. And so I think they don't mind taking someone who's never done it before and kind of turning them around. Snyder says he trained for just a few days before debuting as a server over Labor Day weekend. So what was the training process like? It was a little bit different because they were kind of desperate for servers and every day was very busy. So I I might have gotten the um, shortened version, the short but very intense version. Jenny Wynn heads up training for Matchbox Food Group. And she says normally the training process would be more extensive. The training program, it takes seven days. You know, you don't just come in and get trained today and then get to stay. But the staffing process took so long at the new Ted's Bulletin that they were still seeking people the day the place opened. There's something that we look for, which is called PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. And that was a little bit hard to find. And so it was a little bit more drawn out than we would have liked it to be. If you're not fully staffed in your new restaurant, don't open up all the stations. Don't take reservations to the max. Gus DeMillo co-owns Passion Food Hospitality, which operates a number of local restaurants, including D.C. Coast, District Commons, and Acadiana. Pace your staff out so that they can learn and that they don't get, you know, just clobbered. You know, so. Well, I mean, think about it. If, if a server is literally running, they're not supplying good service. Moreover, if the front isn't ready, chances are the back's not ready. David Weisenberg is another co-founder of Passion Food Hospitality, and he's referring to the front of house and back of house. You know, the area where diners sit and the area where cooks and other support staff work. Weisenberg says it's crucial that everyone in both areas be fully prepared when a restaurant opens. But that doesn't mean you should keep delaying your opening, because if you do... Then the servers you have, they're not able to make income, and training really falls off. It throws a tremendous amount of adrenaline to your crew to get open. You, you can't just keep practicing. you got to throw the windows open. So in a way, it's kind of a catch-22. That's why many restaurateurs try to get around it by pulling a classic move. A lot of people overstaff. In other words... If you need five, you hire ten. And David Weisenberg, quite frankly, is not a fan of that strategy. The interview process should be real as opposed to just bringing in bodies. And you fund some overtime so people can work a little bit more and, and the reason, the best way for people to learn is to do it over and over and over and over again and hopefully do it better. Back at Woodward Table, General Manager Omar Hishmi says overstaffing was actually key to getting his restaurant open. Were you fully staffed when you opened? Yes, we were. Uh, you always want to kind of have a few more than you, you, you know that you need because some are unfortunately not going to work out. And, and then... After that, it was kind of a game of figuring out who wanted to kind of see eye to eye with us as as far as the concept of the restaurant. And then uh, there were some, obviously, that didn't work out, and that's part of the business when you open a restaurant. But regardless of how many waiters, bartenders, hosts, bussers, food runners, etc., that you hire at the get-go, one of the most important parts of the business, Hishmi says, is treating them well with understanding, support and respect. You've got to value the ones that you have and, and, uh, and try and keep them keep them with you. And so far, he says, that's paying off. Many of his original staff members are still with the restaurant today. He still has his share of staffing crises, and of course, he wishes that weren't the case. But in a burgeoning food town like Washington, that's becoming an increasingly tall order.
We turn now to a more personal coming-of-age story about someone who became an adult after being locked up in D.C.'s juvenile justice system. Until just a few years ago, that system was known for overcrowding and violence. But after reforms in 2009, the number of kids making repeat trips through juvenile detention is going down. Jacob Fenston introduces us to one man who's determined not to end up incarcerated ever again. D.C. locks up around 1,000 young people each year. For much of his life, a young man named Marquise was one of them. I used to have a thing for cars. <laughs> I used to like really like driving and racing. Marquise, who asked to use only his first name, was 12 when he was first arrested. He and a group of friends were into stealing cars. Everybody like driving. We used to compete, you know, race up and down the street. You know, I got I got an Audi today. She had a Honda. You know, so it was like it was just competition. It was a sport back then. It really wasn't as far as like we were trying to do anything wrong. It was just we didn't see anything wrong. You know, and then without too much guidance, it just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. He didn't have a lot of support from family growing up. His mother went to prison when Marquise was eight. He was in foster care until she got out seven years later. The last time Marquise was arrested, he was 16, facing drug charges. He spent close to two years locked up. That was kind of like like two years out of my childhood that was gone. This was my time to actually choose, well, okay, now I'm 21. What do I do now? Do I continue to uh, continue to do things that got me where I was at? Or do I better myself and say, okay, this is how I want to do it. This is why I want to do it. I mean, I got goals and dreams, and I want to achieve them. And I can't achieve them stealing cars, selling drugs. He decided it was time to grow up. That means no more racing stolen cars. Instead, he now rides a bike to his job downtown where he does clerical work at a government agency. I pretty much got a straightforward itinerary, and it's pretty much to stay focused on my own business, find a stable career, find some education, and hanging out with other people that don't have the same drive or same interests as me. I really don't, I really don't find myself dealing with them. So, you know, just, just to make it easier. Was that sort of hard? To, I mean, because it seems like it's so easy to fall into a habit or like if you're friends with certain people to get back with them no not really because like being away for a year and a half and then coming back i mean i I was cooling with some of my friends for a little bit but after a while i seen what they were doing i seen it was the same thing i was doing before i got locked up and i was like man i just gave you two years of my life for this so i do it again and part of my plan was actually avoid negativity and it sounds so simple it sounds so easy but at the end of the day it's all around us we could walk out of here, someone easily say, I got a, I got an ounce of weed, you want to do something with it? And it's just, it's, that's, that's when you come to that crossroad. Do I go left, grab it, and say, okay, I'm going to be with you? Or do I go right and say, nah, I'm not doing it anymore? Because it's so, it's so easy just to, just to go down the wrong path. Part of what helped Marquise make the decision at that crossroads was meeting with a mentor, a young law student named Claire Grandison. We talked a lot about his goals and what he wanted to get out of his life. So it was a question of what changes do I need to make in order to have those things happen. It was weird. At first I was like, it was a lady, and then I was locked up while she became my mentor. So it's like, when I come home, is she really going to be supportive? Is she really going to be there for me? She was still there, and they still meet regularly. It's part of a program called Mentoring Today, which links law students at American University with incarcerated youth. 
Even though Claire is the mentor and Marquise is the mentee, they're only a few years apart in age. Claire says the relationship is more of a two-way street. I only moved to Washington, D.C. for law school, so I was incredibly ignorant of most things about D.C. when I came here. Um, So Marquise has taught me a lot about parts of the city that I never would have known anything about. I've learned about the criminal justice system through his eyes, which I think is a perspective that a lot of law students and lawyers lack. As a law student, she says she's learned what the juvenile justice system is supposed to do. From Marquise, she's learned it doesn't always work how it's supposed to. The system isn't always understanding of what it's like to be a teenager or a young adult in the system. So these kids are dealing with a lot of challenges at home with peer pressure And a lot of their youthful behavior has much more serious consequences once you're involved in the system. So they're not able to make the same kind of mistakes that I would without consequences. For Marquise, part of staying on his new path is keeping busy. On top of his job, he also plays in a band. And he's working with Mentoring Today, talking to kids in D.C.'s Youth Detention Center, where he himself was under lock and key just a few years ago. I'm Jacob Fenston. Time for a break, but when we get back... One time we saw, like, these slides of, like, sex positions, and they're like, oh my god, you really saw that? And I'm like, well, it's useful. We'll cover the birds and the bees as our coming-of-age show continues. That's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today our theme is coming of age. Later in the show, we'll meet a guy who dealt with a classic coming-of-age conundrum, choosing between the career everyone says you should pursue and the career you actually really want. First, though, we're going to head to Bethesda, Maryland, to a Sunday morning religious service. Who are we gathered here this morning? What is at the very core of your identity? At River Road Unitarian Universalist Congregation. To scrap, to labor in the vineyards of this world. On any given Sunday morning, you'll find the minister giving her sermon, the churchgoers swaying to the music, and the 8th grade Sunday school class downstairs learning about sex. Yeah, you heard that right, learning about sex. It's a local example of the Unitarian Universalist Nationwide OWL program. That's short for Our Whole Lives, which, as the name indicates, teaches sex ed not only during adolescence, but from kindergarten through adulthood. Emily Berman has the story, which, uh, we should caution you, includes some pretty frank language about those uh, birds and bees. Our Whole Lives takes place at church, but if you're expecting to hear a watered-down message about abstinence or a demonstration of how a condom works by rolling it on a banana, this class may surprise you. How explicit do we get? Very explicit. Peter Benjamin has been leading Our Whole Lives since the program began back in the early 70s. There is nothing left to the imagination in case you really need to wonder about what it's all about. The philosophy is part of the Unitarian Universalist mission, Benjamin says, to encourage members on their own spiritual paths. In this case, on their own paths in sexuality. An eighth grade OWL class is typically a group of 15 to 20 students and two trained facilitators. 
It's an hour of frank conversation every Sunday morning. And sometimes there are assignments that take Owl outside the classroom, like buying condoms. You're you're like 13 or 14, and they're like, what is this kid doing? Oh, my God. Like, they're still in my room, and my parents are like, like, don't care. It's, I mean, they know that it's there. That was Andrew White and Aaron Weinstein. They're both 16 years old now, but took the owl class, like most kids here, when they were 13. We had this one or a couple days where we just, like, all came together and sat in this dark room. And they were like, okay, guys, get ready. We're going to show you something. This is former owl student Rosie Cohen. She's talking about the day they saw the slides. And then they just put it up on the wall, and it was like, oh, here is... A man masturbating. Oh, here's a woman masturbating. Oh, here is these people having sex. They were drawings, but, like, that was pretty shocking. But I'm glad they did it. It sort of took away a lot of the mystery. But, like, they didn't just show the traditional sex. It was, like, gay sex, interracial. (laughs) There was, like, with not, like, people with perfect bodies, like, like, overweight people. And it was, like, whoa, everybody's doing this. Not, like, I mean, not that. Yeah, but not like everybody around you is doing it, but like it's you don't have to be perfect to do this or whatever. It might seem over the top, but it's not only sanctioned by the Unitarian Universalist Association, it's parent approved too. Every OWL student's parents attend two orientation sessions before classes begin. And as OWL alum Eliza Clifford explains, the lessons OWL teaches make it beyond the classroom as well. My friends will be like, oh my god, I can't believe you learned that. And I'm like, well, it's useful. And it's not only about sex. They talk about gender, eating disorders, alcohol, and drugs. According to Clifford, it's learning through sharing. In school, they always would like say, you know, these are the negative effects of drugs, stuff like that. But I think I remember one time in OWL, we were given like actual situations where we read like people wrote down their stories about how this drug affected me. And it really gave me a better perspective. Like, wow, if I do drugs, then that couldn't happen to me. Peter Benjamin and Catherine Hubley have both led the year-long class dozens of times. And the most surprising thing about it is how little the questions change from year to year. One of the exercises is, is dividing the kids into a group of boys and a group of girls and letting them put together a list of all the questions they can think of that they want to ask the opposite sex. Year after year, boys want to know. How do you talk to a girl if she's standing with a group of her friends? And the girls want to know. How do I know if a boy likes me? They're much more interested in relationships. How do I enter a relationship? What happens in a relationship? Those are the things that really matter to them and is, in fact, the really important part of what this all is. And not to leave you with those eternal questions just hanging in the air, according to the OWL class, if you want to know if a boy likes you, ask him. And if you want to approach a girl standing in a group, don't. The girls will say, just wait, don't do it while she's with her friends, wait till she's by herself. Even in this age of overflowing information, former OWL student Claire Hardin says the real content of the class is stuff you can't look up online. When you're on the internet, it's just this huge pool of information, and there's no really right answer, but you can have something that's much more credible when you're in person with people that you trust and people that care about what information is going into your head about this stuff, because it's important. I mean, it leaves a lasting impression on all of us, I think. 
OWL classes for 8th graders are offered at many of the Unitarian Universalist congregations around the D.C. area. Some congregations also teach the later modules to high schoolers and, separately, to adults. River Road Congregation is starting an adult OWL class for the first time in October. So whether you have unanswered questions from your own sex ed experience or are looking to dive into the deep end of human relationships and sexuality, now's your chance. I'm Emily Berman. We want to know what was your sex ed experience like and how did you approach the topic of sex with your kids? Email us at metro at wamu.org. The birds and the bees are flying in the trees. The sun's in the sky and just for you and I. The sky's perfect blue. No cloud could spoil the view. It's a sign from above that shows that we're in love. We turn now to another checkpoint on the road to adulthood, registering to vote. Like getting your driver's license or graduating from high school, taking part in the democratic process is another sign you are growing up. But as Stephen Yenzer tells us, in Tacoma Park, Maryland, teens will be reaching that milestone a bit earlier than most kids. Meet Ben Miller. He's 16, lives in Tacoma Park, and this November he'll be eligible to vote in local elections. I was told I was the first person. I don't know if that's true, but... Ben was indeed the first 16-year-old to be added to the voter rolls since Tacoma Park amended its charter. I found him working in a gelato shop at the center of the city, where he said he's excited to see his community make this change. Um, I think it's awesome. I think it's um, a real honor. Tacoma Park Councilman Tim Mayle led the charge to lower the voting age. It was a part of a larger set of voting reforms passed in April, including extending suffrage to former felons, and instituting same-day registration. Mail says lowering the voting age wasn't initially on his agenda until he looked into similar reforms in Europe. Learning that the voting age was, was lower than 18 in other countries and other places was complete news to me. And so I was open to the idea that, well, how's it working? In fact, it's working quite well. Studies in Austria and Denmark have found that extending suffrage to teens gets them into the habit of voting. What they found is that 16-, 17-year-olds show up. They show up to vote. They understand the issues, at least as well as 18-, 19-, and 20-year-olds do. And then, um, I think, for me at least, even more importantly, if you start them voting at 16 and 17, there's some evidence that they will keep voting when they get to 18 and 19 and 20. In the U.S., that age group is notorious for low turnout. So I asked Mayo, what concerns did people have about lowering the voting age? Um, Many people were concerned that 16- and 17-year-olds don't have the maturity to vote, Um, uh, you know, bad judgment. Uh, people talked about just interest, right, whether whether 16 and 17-year-olds would actually be interested in voting. But Mail doesn't buy those arguments, and neither does Ben Miller. I don't know if maturity is the issue. I'd say, I, I'd say it's really just about being informed. I think all of my friends are capable of assessing the candidates and seeing which, one of, which ones align with their views. I don't think, like, 16-year-olds, like, oh, no, like... Their frontal lobe isn't developed enough to understand politics. Like, we get it. They may get it, but will they turn out to vote? Well, according to the city clerk, more than 80 of Tacoma Park's 16- and 17-year-olds are registered to vote, about a quarter of that population. And Councilman Mail expects that number to rise on Election Day, as voters will now be able to register at their polling places. So what do the older residents of Tacoma Park think about the idea of 16-year-old voters? 
Just down the street from the gelato shop where Ben Miller works, I asked 48-year-old Mark Greiner how it made him feel to see his city become the first in the country to make this change. Excited? <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of community that, that we're in. Uh, it really pleases me that we're in a place where civic discourse is really, really important. So I'm, I'm excited for the process here, and I'm excited about the opportunity for young people. 31-year-old Lauren Alexander is a little more cautious. I asked her what concern she had about the change. I think normal concerns, like you're 16 years old, you, don't, you think you rule the world, but you don't really know anything, but you think you know everything. But back in the gelato shop, Ben doesn't buy it. I think I, I, think I have plenty of friends who are more politically mature than probably the vast majority of Americans. I mean, the vast majority of people my age aren't. But in Tacoma Park, I think that there are a lot of 16-year-olds who um, have their shit together, so to speak. <laughs> we'll have to wait until November to see just how many teens have their stuff together. I'm Steven Yenzer. How do you feel about lowering the voting age to 16? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. If you're feeling bitter, won't you get a babysitter and come spend an evening in Tacoma Park? Take a meditation class or try some of the local grass if that's what helps you find your niece. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Woodley Park in northwest D.C. and Mantua in Fairfax County, Virginia. My name is Bill Menzer and I live in this great community known as Woodley Park. Woodley Park is probably best known for the National Zoo, so if you know where the National Zoo is, you know where we live. Woodley Park is about 100 years old, although we do have a house that goes back to almost the 18th century, the famous Woodley Mansion, which was built in 1804. We have fascinating individuals who live here now and who have lived here in the past. Tim Russert was one of our neighbors. Tom Brokaw lived here. Helen Thomas. We have the director of the National Zoo. Lives right here in Woodley Park. He just walks to work. Isn't that convenient? One of the odd things that happened in the area in recent times, very recent times, was that when one of the pandas, now this is not the famous pandas, this is one of the red pandas whose name I believe was Rusty, escaped from the zoo. So particularly along Cathedral Avenue, which parallels the zoo, the neighbors were all in a hissy saying, oh boy, the panda's out, where is he? Let's go hunting for him, let's see if we can find him. Running up and down, the dogs are out on patrol taking a look for it, everybody having a great old time, a very social event because that's all part of the fun of Woodley Park. So we have just the idyllic community that provides us the protection and the peace of living in the suburbs, but really being in the city and being close enough to have access to the museums, the monuments, concerts, theaters, and everything else that this great city has to offer. I couldn't think of a better place to live than right here in Woodley Park, D.C. I'm Bill Raykow. I'm one of the senior citizens in Mantua. If you look at a map, Arlington, Alexandria, and Fairfax are a diamond shape. If you connect the points in that diamond, that's exactly where Mantua is. Mantua is a destination community, as I like to call it. People come here and they live here for a lifetime. There's some folks that are 100 years old that are still in the neighborhood. Most of the people moving into the neighborhood are families with children, and that's the feature of the neighborhood. They want to be in a neighborhood that's very children and family friendly. 
were centrally located, were extremely large neighborhood with about 1,550 homes. We have part of the uh, intra-county connector trail that runs right through the neighborhood, which is great for jogging, walking, uh, riding bikes. Plus, Mantua, Frost, and Woodson are some of the best schools in the country, and certainly all the schools in Fairfax County are good, but these happen to be among the creme de la creme. We heard from Bill Menzer in Woodley Park and Bill Rakow in Mantua. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org. You can also send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. And we have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, an artist who's coming of age in her own way, well past the age of 100. Well, it keeps you alive. It keeps you in touch and alive. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week our theme is coming of age. Earlier in the hour, we heard about some very particular growing pains in D.C.'s rapidly expanding restaurant scene. And we learned how Tacoma Park is giving teens a jump start on adulthood by lowering the voting age. But up next in today's coming-of-age show, you know that saying about how it isn't the years in your life that count, but rather the life in your years? Well, how do you do? How do you do? Nice to meet you. I recently met a woman in Maryland who fits that sentiment to a T. Can you introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Say that again. Can you introduce yourself? Oh, introduce myself. Well... I'm old. This is Kathleen Williams. Very old. (laughs) And indeed, the native Briton is 101. But honestly, as she sits in the dining room of her Chevy Chase home, her bright eyes flashing, her silver hair elegantly styled, you'd never know she's a centenarian. I mean, obviously, she has trouble hearing, seeing, too. I can see the big form, not the detail. But none of that has stopped Kathleen from returning to her biggest passion from long before she was, in her words, very old. I'm blind and deaf and very old. (laughs) And that passion is art. I've always been an artist, done something in the art world. Kathleen began drawing as a young girl in Northamptonshire. I've always drawn. That is a great pleasure. She eventually enrolled in art school in London, and after moving to the D.C. area in 1951, she spent decades teaching art in D.C. public schools and selling her intricate macrame jewelry at the Torpedo Factory in Old Town, Alexandria. At least 30 years selling things. Her cozy house and elaborate backyard garden feature much of her sculpture. Many of her pieces have appeared in galleries and museums, including the Corcoran and Smithsonian. So I was busy doing creative things all my life, really. So it's sort of in the fingers. In the fingers. And that is exactly what we wanted to tap into. This is art therapist Sandy Geller. Because even though your your sight is impaired, oh, yeah. we right. wanted to tap into the memory. Yeah. Through the Aging in Place organization Chevy Chase at Home, Sandy has been working with Kathleen. 
They met shortly after Kathleen had turned 100, and it had been a while since she'd done any art. But lately, they've been creating these whimsical, colorful figures. All sorts of... A cat. Gloria the cat. Gloria the cat, and mice, and monkeys. And the monkey is maybe three feet tall. Yes, life-size. And they've been doing it out of crumpled newspaper, masking tape, and paint. We wanted to find a way that she could let her hands remember how to sculpt, even though she can't see very clearly. I mean, we tried paper mache, we tried other things, and then quite spontaneously one day there was a newspaper on the table, and I looked around and Kathleen had sculpted a rabbit. I mean, just there it was. There it was. And... As you know, rabbits multiply, but it hasn't stopped multiplying yet. They haven't stopped multiplying. But all of this art, this art making, it doesn't just stay within the walls of Kathleen's Elm Street home. Last Halloween, she and Sandy planned a crafting fair for the neighborhood, at which Kathleen displayed a bunch of her paper and tape figures dressed up as a witch. The Woodland Witch of Elm Street, Elm she, Street. she called herself. And demonstrated how to use regular household items. Cheesecloth and light bulbs and eyelashes to make your own inexpensive Halloween decorations. Then this past May, Kathleen and Sandy organized what they called a celebration of spring. And all of these animals and figures were present and a maypole dance. And there, Kathleen was the queen of the May. And again, the neighborhood from we children to others well on in their years and it it was a celebration it was it was lovely Kathleen and Sandy have a whole slew of ideas for future projects though as the women sit and smile side by side Sandy says she knows who the real driving force is in this dynamic duo you're the one who keeps coming up with the projects <laughs> the latest endeavor is a series of art classes led by Kathleen in her home Though I shouldn't really say classes, actually, since Kathleen has asked Sandy to call them... Workshops sharing your experience. You told me, no, you're not teaching the method. You want to share the experience of the method. And Kathleen hopes to keep her artistic experiences going. No, no, scratch that. She doesn't just hope to keep them going. She says she must. Well, it keeps you alive. I mean, literally. It keeps you in touch and alive. One of the sad things about age is that people stop doing things. But I have a theory that life is lived in chapters, and you come to the end of a chapter, and you can be negative about it or positive about it. And life is full of chapters. And look how many chapters I have, (laughs) being as ancient as I am. Kathleen Williams may call herself ancient, but at the rate she's going, she's bound to be the life of the party when she celebrates her birthday in December and turns 102 years young. To see photos of Kathleen's art and to catch her in action as the Woodland Witch of Elm Street and the Queen of the May, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
Fairy tales can come true. Could happen to you if you're young at heart. If you are among the very young at heart, we'll head south from Chevy Chase now to DC's Shaw neighborhood. That's where you'll find Howard University and a guy named Gilbert Perkins. Perkins is an economics professor, but his world isn't limited to spreadsheets and theories of supply and demand. Perkins also has a passion for literature and hip-hop. And part of his own coming-of-age process involves getting a new generation of D.C. kids to see the connection between those two worlds. Robbie Feinberg brings us his story. So, Michael Porter invented five forces. When I first meet Gilbert Perkins, it's in a cramped classroom at Howard University School of Business. Dressed up in a beige suit, Perkins is here to teach an economics class to about 15 students. He seems like a typical business teacher, but when we leave the classroom and talk one-on-one, his whole identity changes. So, full name, Gilbert Newman Perkins. That's my birth name. Sage Salvo is sort of the artist moniker and stage name that I've been using, I guess going back about 10 years now, just sort of as a performance artist. And that's doing things like the open mic, recording songs, going around the city with different programs. That's been sort of the name that I've, I've, I've used for about a decade now. That transformation from Gilbert Perkins to Sage Salvo, from business professor to rap performer, is a long, complicated story. And it begins before Perkins even entered college, let alone started teaching. It started when Perkins turned 13 and he heard a particular song, I Gave You Power by Nas. And he takes the role of a gun. So he places himself as if he is an actual gun and tells the story about the gun being used. You know, from a human per- from a human perspective. In classical literature, we call that anthropomorphism. You know, he changed his state and gave us a narrative from the position of this inanimate object, a gun. It was completely brilliant. It, just, it completely boggled my mind. As he grew up, Perkins started to see those same literary devices like repetition, personification, foreshadowing, and all kinds of music, from Jay-Z to John Mayer. Soon, he was writing poems, raps, you name it. But for him, that creative side was almost like an alter ego, a side of himself he had to hide away. He never thought it could turn into a real career, so when it came time to head to college, he left literature and music behind to study business. It's a real tough position to be in is that you have this strength this natural ability you have folks who are you know encouraging you to go with this natural ability but then you have this practical logical you know influence that's saying you know you're spending thousands of dollars on college you need to get a job you know you need to be practical so it's it's it was the definite definite conflict and the practical side won out. Perkins kept taking business classes, eventually teaching economics at Howard, but he could never quite shake the feeling that maybe he was more than a businessman. His artistic passion slowly bubbled further and further to the surface. He started producing open mic performances. He wrote raps. He even formed a go-go band. It all finally came together a few years ago when Perkins realized his calling wasn't just hip-hop, but education too. 
That was when he came up with the idea for a program called Words Live. The basis of the program is simple. Perkins wants high schoolers to get as excited about literature as he does every time he hears a new song. And he figured the best way to do that was to teach those children that hip-hop songs aren't so different from classic literary works like Shakespeare or Edgar Allan Poe. I wanted to paint hip-hop in a different light. Like I wanted to show pop culture and mass culture that we're exhibiting like literary genius, like look, 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 and let's get the guys on stage and let's go through their lyrics and it wasn't until like the last couple years where it was like, whoa, this is a powerful education tool. So we're going to talk about and break down the elements that make up this oral thing called epic. And we're going to talk about folk music. Uh, On a Friday afternoon, Perkins, or as he goes by in here, Sage Salvo, brings his Words Live curriculum to Cardozo High School in D.C. Today, he's helping a 12th grade English class read Beowulf, an ancient epic poem. It's an important text, but as the class's teacher Leah Zaslowski says, ancient words and phrases make it tough to get through. Usually when you give them texts like Shakespeare or Beowulf, Chaucer, things like that, they seem to be already intimidated before they even read it. So I wanted them to kind of see that all these things are timeless. Um, The themes keep repeating themselves. Um, The language, the word order might be different than we speak now but it's still saying some of the same things that we do say. That's why Perkins is here, to try to make the poem a bit more accessible. Today, he's comparing the epic tale of Beowulf with a more modern story, the rapper Kendrick Lamar's own epic tale, his fight against peer pressure and violence in the streets of Compton. So he's setting up what the battle is in this song. He's setting that up. He's made a statement that, hey, I have value. Look inside my soul, you can find gold. Look inside your soul, you can find diamonds you didn't know exist. All right, so he's setting up this adversarial battle right now where he's going to be the hero and he's going to conquer this pressure that's engulfed the city. Perkins acknowledges that the program's not for everyone, but he's seen results from past students, and he believes in it. It's like some of the students write letters afterwards, and they'll give me poems. They were just like, dude, I don't know. I've never seen that before. Can you write down my number, my email? Can we stay in contact? I've never looked at language like that before. I had no idea what I was listening to. And that is when I was like, all right, I need to really package this and and develop some type of real functionality. So now, that's what he's doing. Perkins is still teaching economics at Howard, but slowly, his creative alter ego is taking over more and more. He's working to expand Words Live even further, bringing the curriculum to schools like T.C. Williams and Duke Ellington High School. Perkins says that by connecting Jay-Z with William Shakespeare, or Beowulf with Kendrick Lamar, He wants children to understand how important this literature is so that they can get that same feeling he got back when he heard that Nas song when he was 13 years old. I'm Robbie Feinberg. You can find photos of Perkins in the classroom as well as more info about Words Live on our website, metroconnection.org. Time now for Bookend. Our monthly exploration of the region's literary scene. This time around, Jonathan Wilson sits down with the poet Dan Vera. As my Gentile tongue screws up that perfect Yiddish sound, Kim complains we have no right to a word if it's mispronounced. 
I tell her, cry me the River Grande River and recite the litany of the beautiful Maine Bland. That's Vera reading from his poem, Kvetch, from his book, Speaking Weedy Weedy. Vera is a first-generation Cuban-American. He grew up in a heavily Mexican-American community in Texas, but he spent the past 12 years here in D.C. And he's turned his efforts to get to know the city's literary history into a website, D.C. Writers' Homes, a joint venture with poet Kim Roberts. Jonathan met Vera at the Wydown Coffee Bar on U Street to discuss his latest work and how he feels about calling himself a D.C. writer. So you've been here in D.C. for 12 years, um, kind of immersed yourself in uh, the city more than the other writers that I've talked to. Um, talk about how you really have taken a proactive approach to kind of getting to know the history of this place and becoming a part of it. Well, when I moved here um, about 12 years ago, I, I was just really fascinated to discover that writing and writers had existed in D.C., uh, before me, uh, I live in the Brooklyn neighborhood, and um, was fascinated to find out that uh, Sterling Brown lived a few blocks uh, from me, and wanted to know more about him. And that kind of started a, a progression of interest in writers, um, you know, playwrights and poets and uh, novelists who who called Washington home, and that sort of found its way into you know, finding their actual houses and trying to photo-document them through uh, D.C. Writers' Homes. Uh, uh, But also, I think, trying to find a place for myself, in a way, in the landscape of the city. Do you consider yourself um, a D.C. writer? I mean, you you grew up in Texas. um, You have this Cuban-American, Mexican-American background. Um, But is the identity of being a writer based in D.C. important to your writing, important to your craft? I think it is. I... Uh, I consider myself a, a DC writer in the sense that, um, you know, one of the unique aspects of living in Washington is this realization of American history. So, um, uh, the example I like to give is that I live a few blocks away from uh, Sigsby Street, and Sigsby is a name that's not remembered anymore, but Sigsby was the captain of the USS Maine. Maine the Maine, of course, was the ship that was. Um, that exploded in Havana Harbor. And that ship, sort of, that explosion precipitated the Spanish-American War, which uh, precipitated, uh, you know, U.S. involvement in Cuba. And, you know, it's this kind of cascading line of history that sort of led in many ways to my family being here and to me being where I am. You know, I can't think of another city in the United States where, you know, if you pay attention, if you connect the dots between your surroundings and yourself, you can find these amazing connections. In terms of uh, going back to the start of your career, how early did you think about being a poet? You know, I started writing poetry in college as a very private affair. I certainly didn't consider myself uh, a poet and still sort of struggle with that designation because it's, you know, really the, the manifestation of poetry comes one poem at a time. And so part of it's the way I experience poetry is uh, trying to be present with a, a blank page or a, a blank screen and, and trying to really pay attention and uh, articulate what the, what the matter at hand is with each poem and to the extent that I'm successful it's really success that only happens one poem at a time 
So let's talk about your latest book. It's called Speaking Weedy Weedy. What does that term mean for people who come across this title and, and want to know? Weedy Weedy was, uh, and it's spelled W-I-R-I, W-I-R-I. Um, Weedy Weedy was a term that my father used uh, in our house whenever we were speaking too much English. He wanted to make sure that we uh, preserve Spanish and uh, that certainly he could be part uh, part of the conversation since uh, he hadn't really learned a lot of English. Uh, so Speaking Weedy Weedy is um, really the title of a book that explores uh, issues of identity um, and the way that language kind of um, functions and uh, certainly somebody who grew up bilingually um, how we're part of uh, part of each other but also part of uh, a national landscape that's mostly in English. You experienced growing up in America with multiple identities. You had English, Spanish, Mexican-American community, Cuban-American community. I imagine that really colors your love of language and the way you, you look at both English and Spanish. Do you think you would have been a poet without that childhood? I, I love the English language, and I, I think one of the things I love about the English language is uh, the permeability of, uh, of English uh, to not only sort of accept but also struggle with uh, the incorporation of other, other languages like Spanish. Uh, so, so when I um, when I write, I'm constantly going back and forth between these two possible ways of articulating the world around me. That's poet Dan Vera talking with Jonathan Wilson. Vera will be participating in the Folger Shakespeare Library's day-long District of Literature event this Monday. You can find links for more information about the District of Literature and hear more of Vera reading his poetry on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, and Stephen Yenzer, along with reporter Robbie Feinberg. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there, or find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll take a bit of a roller coaster ride with a show about ups and downs. We'll take flight with a local acrobatic pilot, and we'll meet a man who reviews D.C. elevators. Plus, we'll learn how the federal government's budget turmoil is affecting Head Start programs for local kids. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>